Father, we, we thank you that in the midst of storms, trial and struggle, Lord, you do not leave us alone, but you are able, that you are aware, and Lord, that we can say it is well. So now as we open your word, would you speak to us today? Lord, we believe that your word is true. Your ways are perfect. Would you help us to align our lives with your truth? And Lord, anoint me when it's time to do so. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, if you'd open to Mark 14, 12 through 31, there's also a Bible in the seat ahead of you, and also it'll be on the screens this morning. Um, but we'll be reading from Mark 14, 12 through 31. Now, um, a few years ago, we'd uh, had our third child, Karis, and my parents had drove over to be with us for a week, and uh, we talked my mom into staying longer, hallelujah, and uh, <clears throat> my dad drove back, uh, drove back home. Um, so about midday, I got a phone call from my dad. Now, just a little context, my dad's never lived in, he, he's always lived in a town, outside of towns on farms, and never a town larger than 500 people. So a little context for my, my dad. And so he calls me and he goes, Ryan, I am lost in Chicago. And I was like, oh, and he goes, it's not good. And he said, I need your help. And so I said, pull over. And he says, I really don't want to. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there you go, Donnie. And so, uh, uh, and he goes, I really don't want to. And I said, well, just pull over for a minute and like, tell me a crossroads where you're at. And so he gives me two street names. And so I get on Google and I'm looking, I find where he's at. And so I said, okay, let me get a navigator route out here for you. And so I kind of found a route out from where my dad was. I literally have no idea how he ended up where he ended up. Um, and so so I began to navigate him. I said, okay, take a right. And so he took a right and he began to drive down the road. And I said, okay, there's going to be a dry cleaner coming up on your left. There's going to be a Hardee's on your right. You know it's bad if there's a Hardee's, right? And so there's a Hardee's on your right. And, uh, and so he keeps going down the road and I keep telling him the next thing that's coming. And it literally, it took about a half an hour to navigate these roads. And every time he's like, oh, it's getting worse, right? It's getting worse. And so we kind of navigated him out. And, and about a half hour later, dad drives out, gets back on I-80, and goes home. And so it was this moment where my dad had panicked, and he called his favorite son, me, <laughs> the, the most trusted son, and you know, asked for my help to get him out. And he made it. Now, for my dad and I to walk through that kind of journey together, he trusted me at some level out of the context of our life and relationship. Uh, what, what Mark is going to do and what he has been doing, but I think especially as we look at these last days of the life of Jesus, um, he's letting us know who our Savior is and the full extent of what he has done on our behalf, but letting us know even these deeper truths about his very identity, his integrity, of his nature, of what he is, truths about our God. And as we read and we learn these things, they help us walk with God in our present time as we have an understanding of who he is. Now, put a little definition around walking with God. What walking with God kind of defines itself as is that it's in the day-to-day -day of our lives, we have an enduring relationship based out of knowledge of one another and trust and care. That God knows me and I know him. 
And we navigate that, we work at that, and we walk together as we move forward. Now, my dad and I, we had a relationship where we have walked together for years now. Him, probably in the grand scheme of our lives, he's worked harder at our relationship than I have. That's the nature of a dad, right? I don't know if I began to truly appreciate my father until I was 21, 22 years old. And then in growing to appreciate my dad, we've done a lot of things together. and We've navigated where he knows me and I know him. And in that, we had a trusting way to walk. And I believe this is how our life works. It's almost like our life, we're driving down a road. Jesus would talk about it like a path. That there's a path in which we walk down. And if you turn to the right or left, you're going to get off the path. Proverbs, it says there's a path of the righteous and a path of destruction. And his word and the truths about him navigate us as we walk down this road of our life to stay on track with him, bringing him glory and honor, not living in rebellion, going our own way, ending up in places we never wanted to be, but driving safely down the path. Now, our world and our life, much like my dad in Chicago, there are spaces we get where we look around us and we go, this is not good. But I hope that there's a navigation of where we can look to our Father, we can see the enduring truths of who He is, understand the enduring truths of who we are, and walk faithfully with Him through this world and through our lives. So Mark 14, 12 through 31, we're going to look at this text. And the context, if if you're kind of following with us here, is that the betrayal of Jesus is at hand. The scribes and Pharisees, they wanted to get Him, and so they've, Judas came to them and said, hey, for a little cash, I'm in. And so it's expedited the timeline. Jesus has been anointed for burial. And so kind of the timeline of how this works is today, the text will be in, is Thursday. And Jesus will be crucified on Friday. And so we're getting close and things begin to move pretty fast here. So let's read Mark 14, 12 through 31. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb... His disciples said to him, now this is the Passover, this is the celebration of of the people of Israel from captivity in the Exodus, right, from from Egypt. And this was, they would look back and think about the faithfulness of God and the bitterness of their journey, but they would, the the Passover was all about God is faithful, he is good, he took us through the time, he he parted the sea, he's done all these good things for us. It was a celebration. So, end of verse 12, where, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So this point in time, the question is, where's the party? This was a joyous celebration. So the disciples are, okay, it's Passover. Where's the party at tonight, Jesus? Jesus, verse 13, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, in Luke 22, we see this is Peter and John. He says to Peter and John, go into the city, go from Bethany to Jerusalem, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him. So Jesus had prepared. He had set all this up, and this was peculiar because a woman normally would have carried the water, but she didn't. There was a man carrying it. It would have been distinguishable. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, tradition says it's John Mark, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So in this moment, they, they obeyed Jesus and prepared the Passover just as he had commanded. They, 
they would have had to get a lamb and had it sacrificed to prepare for the meal. They would have had to have found unleavened bread, bitter herbs, wine, water, and all the elements in order to have this meal as tradition spoke and the Bible commanded. So in verse 17, and when it was evening, he came with the 12. They had all met back up and now, in this moment, they, they, he, he came with the 12. He's going to wash their feet, we see in John. And then the Mark text just goes into the, this moment of predict, predicting or, or telling of his betrayal. Verse 18, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now this is that moment where everything's happy around the table, right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus kind of drops a bomb, and everything becomes very heavy. It's like that year at Thanksgiving when my brother, brother said, hey, let's do an airing of grievances instead of thanks around the table, right? It's that moment where you go, oh, geez, and then somebody actually did it, right? And it's this moment of like, this is going to be bad. But, but that's the kind of the context. Is this, this went from a joyous celebration, a time that would have been reclining in ease, they didn't understand what was happening, and Jesus is going to bring clarity that things are happening abruptly, and the end is coming soon. He says, truly I say to you, again, verse 18, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, deeply saddened, and to say to him one after another, is it I? The joyful occasion, again, became sober quickly. And he said to them, is it it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And we see in John 13, that this is Judas. And Ju- Jesus kind of points Judas out that he knows. It says in John 13, 26, what you are going to do, do it quickly. And Judas will leave at this point and go to betray Jesus. Verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. The Son of Man goes, meaning that he is leaving, dying, departing, as it is written of him, to fulfill his purpose. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. This did not make the guilt less for those whose violation was for him to die for their seeming gain. Even though this was prophesied that Jesus would do this, it didn't make the violation less of what the men would do against Jesus. It says, then, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I think this is true for all who live in rebellion and suffer the judgment that is due to them. It would have been better to not be born than to die without Jesus. And as they were eating, he took bread, verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to him and said, Take, this is my body a presentation of what he has, what, what, what he was about to bear, the punishment of sin in his flesh, his body broken for them. Now, in this, there's going to be symbolism. In the Passover, there was symbolism. There was bitter herbs that represented their bitter journey, and there was all these elements of the Passover meal. And just so some traditions would say that the, the, the bread actually becomes his body and the wine actually becomes his blood. What we believe, and I believe what the scriptures teach, is that this is symbolic. It is, uh, Augustine said it like this, one thing is seen while another understood. We see the cup, we see the bread, and they represent, they're a symbol of the broken body of Jesus and his blood poured out for our sins. 
So in verse 23, the cup, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, and that word is Eucharisto, Eucharist, the giving thanks for what Jesus has done. That's where some traditions get that phrase. He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, new covenant, which is poured out for many. This is the blood sacrifice of the spotless lamb. What the Passover lamb once represented, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment. Jesus is the better sacrifice, the true sacrifice, the true Passover lamb. Jesus is the one who will complete, finish, never again needed, a sacrifice of blood because his sacrifice was spotless and perfect. And in verse 25, it says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it new in the kingdom of God. Means that there will be another meal one day in his heavenly kingdom when he restores all things to himself. In verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn, that hymn would not have been Rock of Ages, wasn't written yet. It would have been somewhere between probably Psalm 113 and 118. The old, old hymns are just the Psalms. And they would have said something like this, Praise the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord, who is like our God. His steadfast love endures. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I love the Lord because he heard my cries and my pleas for mercy. These exalting, kind of uplifting of the Lord kind of psalms through Psalm 113 and 118. And then they would have sung a hymn and Then it says in verse 26, they went out to the Mount of Olives there, and we'll read about this next week, would be found the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus said to them, gets a little bit more somber, you will all fall away, fall away literally, lose confidence and hope. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, Zechariah 13, 7. But after I am raised up, Jesus says, I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to defeat death. I will not stay dead. I will rise. I will go before you to Galilee, which would have been warming in some way to their heart because that was a representation of home to them. Peter said to him, and love Peter, even though they all fall away, which I love that. Hey, all these jokers might do it, Jesus, right? Not me. I will not. Peter did not understand his own frailty. Verse 30, and Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. We know the full story and this is exactly what happened. But he said emphatically, again, Peter says this over and over again, disregarding the truth of what Jesus said, and disregarding his own weakness. I will not deny you. And he says, no, if I must die with you, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And imagine Jesus in this moment, knowing, Peter, knowing, yet Peter insisted, arguing to prove his allegiance. And then all the disciples chimed in. They all said the same. And the next week we'll pick up Jesus praying in the garden. So in this text, there's really kind of 
two things we want to do. One, we want to pull out the truths in the text that help lead us and guide us as we walk down this road of life trusting in our God. What truths does this passage have for us? And then second, what, in light of these truths, what are we going to do? And so two truths that I think we can kind of squeeze out of this text is first, Jesus is prepared. Jesus is prepared. He is prepared for Passover. If Jesus kind of wasn't prepared for Passover and said, hey guys, where do you want to meet? The betrayal wouldn't have happened in the garden. It would have happened in an upper room because Judas was just waiting for a moment to know where to go. But Jesus did it in secret, knowing that his betrayal was at hand. He was prepared for the Passover. He had everything set. He had the place and the time and location, and he sent two trusted men to go and accomplish the task for him. Not only was he prepared for the Passover, but he was prepared for his betrayal. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. And in knowing that Judas was going to betray him, he was not caught off guard the moment in which he was betrayed. Judas didn't walk up to him in the garden. Jesus goes, Judas, not you. I can't believe you've done this to me. Jesus knew that his betrayal was at hand and he knew who his betrayer was. Not only was he prepared for the Passover betrayal, but he was prepared for denial. He knew Peter and all the disciples would be deserters. He knew that Peter and all the disciples would be deserters. Now, it's funny when you think about that, because when we hear words like betrayal and denial, they're cutting. These are the things that leave the deepest scars in our life, the times in which we've been betrayed by another, the times when we've been denied by others. Half this room still has issues from middle school when we didn't get to play on this team or this group of guys or girls didn't like us, right? Anyway, anyway, if you do, just get over it. I'm not letting middle school define me. That was the worst years of my life, right? So <laughs> I'm moving to the good years. So, all right. And so, so, so we know these two emotions, but, but what's so amazing about Jesus is he was fully man and fully God, but Jesus is unique, one of a kind, unlike any other. I don't know about you, but I love, I love stories about, I love movies, I love stories, and I love stories about heroes, always have, and I think most of you in this room at some level, unless you're a very, very dark person, like, like the story of a hero, of somebody coming through. Now, for me, um, so you got like the superhero things, and like Superman's kind of always been my least favorite superhero, I'll explain why. Because like he can shoot lasers out of his eyes, yet he's always in trouble. Like, how does that happen? Like, dude, fly way up in the sky and laser beam out of your eyes, whoever you want to. Like, you don't ever have to get in a fist fight, right, Superman? But so Superman's kind of like, he doesn't make any sense to me as a hero. But then I watch movies like Jason Bourne. Okay, so now I don't know if you like Jason Bourne, but Jason Bourne's kind of like the coolest, like, new, like, hero, Mission Impossible, James Bond kind of guy. And what's great about James Bond, or what's great about Jason Bourne is like you can point a gun at Jason Bourne, and he's like, gun, boom, and he just like takes it apart. He's like, boom, gun. You don't even have a gun anymore, right? And he's like, ah, oh, I don't have anything to fight you with. I'll take this phone book. And he's like, bam, phone book, you're done. Like, he's amazing, because it just, he's like this guy that you just can't touch. And, and in some way, there's embedded in all of us, we have all these stories of heroes, and, and we have superheroes, and all these different stories of heroes. And embedded in these, these stories of heroes is something I think that resonates deeper in our hearts. 
And these deeper things in our hearts is we do want to know like this, this great hero, one that can overcome and one that knows what's coming in his way. And see, Jesus is the ultimate hero. He is the ultimate story. He is the, he is the one who knows what's coming his way. He knows what's happening. There's no way, there's no trickery that he's going to miss or pass him. And everything he needs to accomplish, he will. We see this in just the things the Bible identifies him as. He is the true physician. He is the true king. He is the high priest. He is the prophet of prophets. He is skilled at every level of who he is in his identity. And what we see in this text is Jesus is prepared. Nothing catches him at surprise. The second thing that we see is that Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Savior. We see him explain that his body would be broken for us, that his blood would be poured out. And we see that we are now commanded to do this thing called take communion together, which is this regular thing in which we do to remind us that his body was broken and his blood was poured out, that his body was broken and his blood was poured out because we as the church tend to forget things. And what he does, he puts a mark and he says, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget what I have done for you on the cross, bearing your sin and pouring out my blood to make you right. Jesus is Savior. He is the only one that can adequately bear the weight of sins of humanity. Not only do we see that he's Savior in this way, but we also see that in one time, that the consummation of all things, the true Passover lamb, Jesus, will set all things right, and we will be with him forever and eternity, the consummation of all things. See, this is the reality that Jesus came, his body was broken, his blood was poured out, and one day forever we will be with him. Now, there's this issue that all of us face in life, and it's an issue of living in reality. Now, um, let me explain to you how this works out. And it can work out really bad in our lives or it can just work out kind of bad at times. So how it works out is a young teenager, what happens is you don't live in the reality that there's any consequence for your life, right? And so the reality is, I used to say this to my mom, my bones don't break, right? And she would always be like, oh, Ryan, don't say that, right? It's like when I'd leave the board, when I'd leave the house, she'd say, buckle up. And I'd say, nope. And I'd walk out the door, right? I was just like antagonistic with my mother. And so, so there's this thing, but what happened? I didn't live in the reality that my hands could break, but then I was in college and guess what happened? I broke my hand, right? I didn't live, I, I lived in the reality that I was kind of indestructible, but the reality is, is I'm not indestructible. Uh, when I went to college, I didn't live in the reality that I was an actual college student the first semester, Right? And that was a bad reality not to live in because it gave me a very, very low GPA. I turned it around. The older I got, the better I did, okay? So um, anyone that's going to college, do not follow after your pastor in that regard. And so, um, but this is how it works out bad. Um, A husband who's at work and he doesn't live in the reality that he's committed his life to another woman. And he lives in a reality that he can go and do whatever he wants. In, in a few moments, days, months, not living in the reality of your covenant can lead you to a destruction in which you did not know and a pain and a sorrow in your heart. We do this all the time in our lives where there's this reality in which we choose to just kind of push away and live in something that isn't really true, isn't really real. Are you with me? 
And I think we do this often with Jesus as Savior. We push away the reality of what he has done for us, and we live in some other form of reality. See, the reality is, see, Jesus' body would be broken when he spoke these words, and it was. That his blood would be poured out on the cross, and it was. And there's also reality that he will return one day, and we will eat with him again, and we will give an account for our lives. These are, these are things that are eternal realities that are true, 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 true. But oftentimes, we live our life thinking, eh, in this moment, in this day, I'm going to go and do this, disregarding what he has done for me and going my own way, living in my own counter-reality. I believe the most pure and true reality that endures us as Christians, and I hope humanity one day increasingly in our world, is a reality of what Jesus has done because there is nothing more real and there is nothing more true. And so we see in the text that Jesus is prepared and that Jesus is Savior. So in light of that, what do we do? Three things. First, we, we recognize that Jesus is aware. You think maybe recognize, you might think is a too light of a word, but I think there's somewhere in our mind that we have to cognitively recognize that I have one that is aware of my life. Jesus is aware. And I think in a positive way in our lives that wherever struggle you might find yourself when we sang that song, It Is Well, there may have been something that really popped in your mind and it warmed your heart knowing that even in spite of this trial or struggle, it's okay. There's this thing that warms our heart knowing that he knows where I am. He knows my burden. He knows my struggle. He knows my challenge. He is aware. But I think maybe negatively, and maybe negative isn't the right word, maybe more of just more painful, is he knows where you're trying to deceive him. He knows of the things that are done in secret. He knows the things that are done in your heart, in your motive, in your life. And I don't say that like I'm disconnected from that. He knows what's going on in my heart in my life, in my motives, in my desires, and my longings. There is nothing done in secret. We are always before him. We must recognize that Jesus is aware. He's aware in our struggle, and he's aware in our rebellion. We cannot hide. There's no height in which we can flee, no depth we can run to flee from his presence. Second, we must acknowledge our own brokenness. Peter in this didn't understand his own brokenness. He did not see his own frailty in his humanity. So he cried out as though he had strength in himself rather than saying, I know I am weak. Father, help me. There is none in this room, if you are strong, that have not acknowledged your weakness. There is none of us who are strong in and of ourselves. We are only strong because the Lord has made us strong. And in this, what Peter does is he says, in his own strength, in my own strength, I am capable of standing up against one of the harshest penalties that might come my way. 
See, what happened when Peter was confronted was there would be great consequence for Peter to say, I'm with Jesus. And even for us in this room, there may be great consequence for us to say in our world, I'm with Jesus. Peter wouldn't say it because he lost confidence and he lost hope. Fear had gripped him. He didn't acknowledge his own brokenness and his need. He lived in his own strength. And the third we can see and kind of apply from this, from this text in our life is to press into Jesus. The body broken and his blood poured out and one day that we will be with him forever, that through his word and through prayer and as I press into him, what I have is my heart is strangely warmed to him more and more and more. My neediness is seen more and more and more because I'm living in the reality that I could not save myself, but one had to come and die for me on the cross. And because he died for me, now I will give my life freely to him for him to lead me and guide me and to take this man who was once weak weak and in darkness and blind. Give me sight and help me to walk into light and help me to walk freely in him. This is his work and he is the one who makes us strong. And we realize that the more we press into Jesus and the completed work that he has done on our behalf. See, there's a few years ago, um, I was in, well, when I was like 21 years old, I was in college and a friend of mine was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and he was mentoring me, and he was kind of talking me into going on staff with Campus Crusade. And so Debbie and I were contemplating that, and I'd gone on a recruiting thing for Campus Crusade staff, now known as Crew. Um, and there, Craig asked me, he said, Ryan, who's one man you'd like to meet before he dies? One great man of faith. And I said, Bill Bright. Bill Bright was a founder of Campus Crusade. He founded it in 1950 at UCLA, and I think by the time he died, it was on 4,000 campuses in the U.S. and over 192 countries, and over half a million people had served on staff. It's this incredible. Bill Bright's kind of this. Um, you know, everybody knows Billy Graham. Nobody knows Bill Bright, and uh, but Bill Bright was probably second to Billy Graham in the last decades of just effective work for the kingdom of God in our world. And so we prayed that I could meet Bill Bright. I wanted to meet him because Campus Crusade had deeply affected my life. And so about a year goes by and I get a phone call. And we were this kind of fast-growing campus ministry and I got invited to come speak at an event where Bill Bright was at. And so they, they called me and they said, Ryan, would you come speak and tell, just tell the story of what God's doing on your campus? And I said, you'll be up right before Dr. Bright. And there's this moment, like, I started crying. I'm like, oh, my goodness, God, you answered my prayer. Like, there's no reason for me to go there except, I think, for you to have shown your face on me and allowed me just a moment to to just know that you answer me when I call on you. So I flew down, and I went, and I spoke at this event, and I knelt down before Dr. Bright, and he had pulmonary lung disease, and he barely could breathe at this point. He's in a wheelchair, and I knelt down before him, and it's like I was talking to the Pope. He... He like patted my head. I had hair. I was worried he'd get messed it up. No, he, he patted my head and he said, oh, my dear child. And he prayed over me and I left. And then just a few months later, Dr. Bright passed away. And at his funeral, his son um, told the story. He said, my, my dad, when he was really sick, he goes, I went to his bedroom and I said, dad, what, what can I pray for you? And he said, oh, son, 
what I've asked people for years and years, just pray that I won't fall out of love with Jesus. And his son goes, and it was kind of this, and I'd heard him say that before, and I even, I remember hearing him say that and being like, Dr. Bright? Like, you're like a giant of the faith. Like, why would you say that I would never fall out of love with Jesus? That doesn't even make sense to me. And then he kind of pressed in to his dad a little bit more. He said, no, dad, like, what, what else can I pray for you? And he goes, you know, I've seen some people when they're dying become angry with God because of their pain. And he goes, would you, would you pray for me that I wouldn't become angry with God, but I'd love him to my death? And I love that story because there's just this humanity and this truth embedded in his life. And, and it was this. He understood his frailty, but he understood how wonderful Jesus was. And in his own frailty and how wonderful Jesus was, he said, oh, that I would never deny the one who loved me so much he died for me. But I would never stop worshiping him and honoring him because he is so wonderful in my life. See, Dr. Bright, I, I think he, he was aware. He knew his own brokenness and he lived his life pressing into Jesus and he finished well, honoring Jesus with his life. And so for us today, do you recognize in your life that Jesus is prepared? He knows what is going on. There's nowhere that we can hide or run or flee from him. That he is Savior. And might we, might we recognize his awareness in the day-to-day of our lives? Might we acknowledge our own brokenness, knowing that without him I cannot achieve And might we do all that we can to press into Jesus, the one who gave himself for us. Let's pray this morning. Father, we recognize that in and of ourselves that we are incapable. We cannot bring ourselves from darkness to light. We can't bring ourselves from blindness to sight. But Lord, we believe. Lord, I know that you've done that in my life. Something I could not do for myself, you did for me. And those in this room that have never given their life to you, Lord, I pray you'd help them to step into what is actually true. Jesus, that you came and that you died, that your body was broken for our sin, that your blood was poured out to cover our sin. That as we repent, of our sins and turn in faith to you that we can be made new and right and whole. So Lord, for the man or woman or child, student that's never given their life to you today, give them the strength to turn from their sin and turn to you. Lord, for us who have entrusted our lives to you, Lord, help us live in the reality that you are aware of our struggle and our rebellion. Help us to trust and repent well. Lord, help us to live in a place of recognizing that we are not strong, but you are. And because you are strong, we are strong, and we are capable of overcoming and living in a freedom that that is far beyond our imagination. Father, help us. You are strong. We recognize our weakness today. Jesus, help us to press into you that we might 
grow in the glorious riches of all that you are, that you might lead us and guide us as we live our lives walking with you. So Lord, wherever each person finds themselves this morning, help us to take our next steps forward with you in light of the truths that we have seen about you today. This I ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll stand, we're gonna sing. And as we sing, these altars are open for you to come and respond as he leads.